What is Demystifying Research? Hosted by me, Kelly Harris. And me, Catherine Hoyt. Demystifying Research is a space where we dialogue on training, careers, and all things research. Everything from is research right for me to thinking about applications, mentorship, which research degree is right for me, handling failure and rejection, CVs versus resumes, and funding. This is a space where we engage in discussions around the questions we all have or have had when considering a career in research and science. As clinician scientists, we seek to answer questions and address issues that aren't clearly addressed in more formal spaces, things that weren't addressed in our clinical training, questions that we may not know how or where to begin to seek answers. This is not a space only for scientists and researchers, but for anyone who may be interested in science and research. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Um, I am so excited to talk about community-engaged research. I think I speak for Kelly and I that this is something that we both care a lot about and have been talking a lot about in recent months about how do we get learners and peers and colleagues excited about engaging the community in developing our questions and moving forwards. Um, so I'm, I'm, I guess, really excited today. I'm not, I'm not, I don't guess. I know that I'm really excited today to talk with Adam Pearson, who's a leader in our local community in engaging in, in research and developing new initiatives and helping people a lot. But I can't describe it nearly as well as Adam can. Adam, could you start with giving us a, a brief introduction of what you do and what you're seeking to change as you move forwards in your career? Sure. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. I don't get a chance to join too many podcasts. And so um, it's always great when I can hop on and, and discuss a topic that I'm really interested in with two wonderful, brilliant people uh, who know a lot about the subject. Um, so my name is Adam Pearson. Um, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And um, my background is in occupational therapy, um, but I'm very, very focused on social determinants of health type work and housing equity um, and, you know, creating social policies that redress some of the inequality that we have in our society. And so uh, right now I am the chief operating officer at Peter and Paul Community Services and um, Peter and Paul is a homeless services organization. And our mission statement is that we walk with people facing homelessness on their journey to lifelong stability. And so uh, we have six different programs that we operate around the city, which includes two emergency shelters for men, uh, two transitional housing programs, uh, one for individuals with a diagnosis of HIV and another one for individuals who have severe and persistent mental, mental illness. Um, and then we have a permanent supportive housing program for individuals who have experienced chronic homelessness before. And then uh, an arts program, because we don't want to just be about you know, business and clinical stuff. We wanna make sure that clients have an outlet uh, through which to express themselves via creative writing, uh, sculpting, painting, sometimes performance art, a little bit of everything. So I've been in this role for about three years now, and um, pretty much my job is to supervise all of our programs um, and the 75 or so staff members that come along with our programs and to build systems where people can thrive. Um, you know, I'm a, 
it's, it's a high level position at the agency and my job is to just you know foster culture where we are caring and um where we are attentive to the the good work that we do um so yeah that's the i guess the two minute elevator speech for who i am thank you so much for sharing adam i don't know if you ha have an idea about this but i would i'm really interested if in what you envision for the future for helping people who are unhoused or transitioning into lifelong stability? I think that it's a few different things. I think that um, there are a number of organizations in the city of St. Louis that are well positioned to house people on the streets, whether it is through emergency shelter, um, whether it's transitional housing, permanent supportive housing, even individuals who struggle with substance use. There are a lot of organizations who are able to, to deliver some of those services. I think that Peter and Paul is uniquely positioned to meet a lot of those needs, primarily in the sheltering and permanent support housing work. Um, and so where I'm trying to position the agency is, uh, is on a pathway of, you know, consistent, um, uh, you know, conservative growth, I would say, we don't want to expand too quickly. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we are meeting the needs of the community, making sure that what we're doing is constantly checked via, you know, continuous quality improvement and, um, you know, making sure that we're actually meeting some of the goals and the outcomes that we, we set out to achieve. So I think for me, I'm really interested in expanding programming and shelter that uh, gets people stable and gets people home. I think writ large for my career, I'm really interested in doing some broader level systems work um, that would help position, you know, multiple agencies or perhaps regional governments on how they respond to uh, the housing crisis. So as you know, there's always, always significantly more demand for affordable housing then there is sufficient supply. And so that's something that I'm really interested in. And I think that um, occupational therapy can play a role in some of that. Um, even if, you know, we don't know how to build housing ourselves, we know about some of the pieces that make individuals successful in housing. So I think that's, in my mind, that's kind of how I marry occupational therapy and some of this housing and equity work that I'm really interested in. Excellent. I was actually um, just going to ask you about that because in all of the wonderful things that I hear you're doing, I didn't hear you say that you're an occupational therapist. So I just was going to ask about, you know, how your clinical training as an OT, you how do you feel that prepared you for the work that you're doing? And um, what kinds of things might you, how you, how are you supplementing that training or how have you to do this work? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, um, you know, as, as always, I think Washington University really prepares students to um, go out and do some non-traditional practice in a lot of cases, and that's some of what I did. Um, I think that all of us are very aware of home health and, you know, inpatient OT, outpatient OT, and, you know, maybe to a certain extent, community mental health. Um, but I think what uh, what I was really prepared to do uh, that Washi gave me the tools for is to think broader with how we apply occupational therapy practice in the community. 
And so for a lot of the clients that we work with who are perhaps moving out of a shelter or they're in transitional housing and they're moving into their very own, you know, housing unit for the first time where they have their name on their own lease. Um, some of the questions that come to mind are, how am I going to store food? You know, is my refrigerator big enough? What happens if I lose my door key? Um, I don't really know how to wash my clothes and do laundry. Like, do I put half of the bottle of detergent in when I'm doing a load or just like a small cup? Um, you know, how do I mop my floors? What if I have carpet that I don't have a vacuum? So there are a lot of questions that uh, the OT program prepared me for in just thinking about task analysis and thinking globally about the, the strengths and, you know, areas of opportunity and improvement for an individual. I think that um, that work and that training has been supplemented, honestly, by exposing myself to a lot of other skill sets and a lot of other trades. So um, here, Peter and Paul, we have nurses, we have uh, substance use counseling, um, we have, you know, just kind of regular general counseling, um, we have social workers, case managers, um, you know, at one point there was a, a dietitian that we were partnering with. And so I think when, whenever I get the chance to engage clinically with somebody, which is not often, um, some of it is geared around making sure that what I'm doing as an OT is uh, complementary towards, you know, some of the other work these other individuals are doing. And I may not be able to speak their language when it comes to all of the clinical work and the, the social type of work that they're doing, because I don't have that training, but I can add to it. And then OT just becomes part and parcel of this larger package of services that we offer. So that's clinical. For the administrative work that I'm doing, it's a little bit different because uh, at WashU, there's like one business class we took, I think. Um, and so, you know, just kind of on the fly and on the job training, I learn about budgets and how to do those. Um, I learned a little bit about fundraising with the folks in development who I work with. Um, I learned a lot about public speaking, um, just kind of, again, on the job, on the fly training. And then some of the other more complicated facets of the job, like, you know, navigating policy, you know, acquiring tax credits for project development and purchasing property, like all of that are, uh, all, all of those things are things that you just kind of pick up with working with different professionals and reading about it and just kind of getting some of that exposure. That sounds like you wear a lot of different hats as, as a part of your role in working with communities and being a leader and trying to navigate organizations. Um, in, in making progress uh, towards supporting individuals. So with that in mind, I'm wondering what community-engaged research looks like to you. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question because we're still figuring that out as an organization. So um, I will say, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, we are doing, you know, maybe five to a dozen intakes in our emergency shelters, right? There's 
constant turnover. Some people move in, they stay with us for a couple of days, then they move out. Uh, they might stay with us for a couple of months, but every day we're taking in new people, meeting folks, you know, coming up with treatment plans, all of that. And so every day we're generating dozens, if not hundreds of data points for each person. And so um, right now, you know, candidly, our focus is making sure that our clinical services are operating at the highest standards possible. But something that I'm very, very interested in engaging more is looking at our services and figuring out how we can become better um, via partnership with institutions that are able to engage in some of that research. So Peter and Paul, you know, just by necessity of us having grants, like we have goals and objectives and you know key performance indicators that we're looking at tracking. Um, those are sort of like the business metrics, but I think similar to those, like in the academic world, it's siblings might be research questions and the data that comes with the research. And so I'm interested in us building a more robust data platform so that we can ask research questions that help us figure out um, if what we're doing is effective and then uh, to give us an opportunity to maybe stretch our legs a little bit. Um, an example of something that I've been thinking about for a while is um, how does the uh, how does the world impacted by global warming affect the local unhoused community? And what sort of data points can we look at to paint a picture about how much our folks are being affected? And so, you know, whenever somebody goes to the emergency room because they have hyperthermia or hypothermia, maybe sunburn, you know, that generates, uh, you know, ICD-10 codes and CPT codes. And so is there a way we could look at some of this, you know, granular data or maybe uh, look at, um, um the like I think the word is maybe geospatial that that's not the word like geo I forget the word is geospatial I think where you're where you're going yeah 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 so like looking at that maybe at a neighborhood level or a zip code level like to see how many people are stuck outside getting too hot getting too cold so like you know can we track that sort of thing internally can we cross-reference that with, you know, Medicaid records and CPT codes, you know, if we work with the insurance company. So like those are the types of things that I would love to find out because I think that could influence our services. So, you know, right now what community-based research looks like for us is really just setting a, a very basic foundation for measurement of our services the way they currently are. And then partnering with organized or uh, institutions like WashU or SLU or another organization that is uh, really sound with research, like uh, Places for People. Uh, that's a local organization that serves individuals with mental illness um, and helping us to think through what some of our metrics might be and what our approach would be and how we want to handle IRB as an independent uh, institution in the community. So I have two questions. Um... Me too. <laughs> so a lot of what you described is kind of community engaged research or collaboration as the collab as the community partner, right? And that's what I'm kind of hearing. So partnering with institutions, I would love to know um, 
you know, what do you think is important for those institutions to know to, you know, because I think sometimes um, as institutions, we want the, you know, we want to have these relationships and we don't necessarily know that community organizations want them just as much sometimes. And I mean, that's what I'm hearing you kind of say. And so I think like thinking about from an institutional perspective, what's important for them to know to make that kind of relationship successful and a win-win, right? I think institutions kind of have their own metrics oftentimes. And we, you know, thinking about what is it that our community partner or collaborator really needs out of this and how should we be approaching this work and how should we be approaching that community, right? Um, to begin with, yeah. so that's one question. Yeah, I think that uh, the first thing that comes to mind is making sure that the organization is, is shored up on its ethics approach. And, you know, kind of, again, going back to this IRB question, um, a lot of organizations are collecting data. Uh, and as part of that process, people are filling out a consent uh, for release for information, right? Consent. Um, to treat those types of things. And so I think a lot of organizations have that foundation. But the other piece to that is making sure that people know that in addition to the services that they're receiving, that they're also potentially engaged in research. And I don't know, I just truthfully don't know how, how much that's been communicated in the community by the organizations who are doing the research. So I would say that's a big thing because um, with our population, you know, working primarily with people who are unhoused and who have experienced homelessness, many of them are currently and actively experiencing homelessness. The assumption going into this work is that 100% of these individuals have experienced trauma across the board. Men, women, children, if you are unhoused, you very likely have experienced trauma. Um, and some of that trauma is from medical systems. And some of that trauma is from healthcare systems. And so we have to be very, very careful as an organization to be communicative as much as possible, um, even communicative to like a fault, right? Just all constant communication, making sure that people understand what they're signing up for. Um, a lot of the folks in our population uh, have trouble reading for a variety of reasons. And so, um, you know, I think part of the ethics is making sure that we are putting procedures in place some way, somehow to make sure that people know what they're getting themselves into. So I would say that ethics is a big part of that. And then I think just logistically, um, one thing that I would want organizations to know is that the research that they do might not be like your classical type research where you're um, able to, you know, control for all of these factors and, um, you know, have a group that is receiving services and is not receiving services. Like it's kind of hard to make those measurements. And so I would say, you know, be open to the type of research that you do. Quantitative is great, but qualitative is also really good. And so uh, just be cognizant that you might go into it thinking of a framework for the research that you have, but you might need to be flexible with your approach. Excellent. That's great. Um, what about anything you would add, like specific to learners who are interested in going into community-based work? Yeah, I think um, 
humility is great. Um, you know, to to go from an academic institution with you know millions of dollars in research grants and potentially billions of dollars in in funding, otherwise, um, to go to an organization that might struggle with hiring like two staff members for the office. Um, be humble going into the process that you have training in how to do research and you've probably got some experience in how to do research, but the way that it's actually implemented at the local level might be a little bit different and the processes might not be fully fleshed out. Things might move a little slower than you would want them to, um, but it's still a valuable experience nonetheless. And then also understand that you're going into a different culture. It is a different feel. It's a different vibe. Um, and, you know, if you're a student coming into the community to do, you know, community-engaged research, um, you're the guest. You know, this is these individuals' home. It's their workplace. It's, it's their community. And so, uh, you know, humility goes a long way in asking a lot of questions and, and not making any assumptions. I think those are probably the, the key things that I would recommend. Everything else kind of comes with it. I think a lot of the research uh, skills that we pick up are very technical in nature and very process-centered. I think a lot of people can learn the technical and the processes just by picking up a book, but it's that humility piece that is going to take a lot of uh, introspection and um, real conversation with yourself about, you know, checking biases at the door. Yeah. Wow, Adam. I, I feel like like that. Uh, Kelly actually had this idea. She just threw it in, in a chat to me. I think we need to title the episode that um, humility goes a long way. So I think a lot of what I heard you saying over the a couple of your past responses is like the importance of honesty, of commitment to what you're doing, and um, and commitment over time because it might not function in the way that that you have been trained to conduct research previously or in, in other types of environments. And when you're engaged with community-based organizations and with individuals, you have to put in the put in the effort to uh, make sure that you're asking questions and and um and taking the time to understand all of the factors that are influencing why they're doing what they're doing when they're doing it. Um, and and that's gonna make your research look a whole lot different. Yeah, I don't know that there's anything to add there, right? So building off of that, like thinking about the importance of sustainability and communication um, and commitment to working with people to achieve the outcomes that you want, how would you suggest that OT learners or people in other healthcare professionals, other rehabilitation professionals or PhD trainees, how should they get started if they want to do research that engages in sustainable community change? Hmm. Yeah. How would you get started? Um, I would hope that whatever institution that they're a part of has an IRB. And I would hope that that IRB team um, has some resources in how to engage the community in research. 
And, you know, I would hope that I, that the IRB team also appreciates and recognizes that there are a lot of um, barriers and, uh, you know, environmental, cultural, social concerns that need to be, uh, you know, accounted for when they're doing that sort of research. And if that IRB does not have any resources related to community engaged research, then they can Google it. Um, and there are a lot of resources online. I mean, there are a lot of universities that are sort of shifting um, shifting their approach to community engaged leadership and research and uh, are having, you know, honest discussions about what it takes to do the work. What are some of the things to look out for? Uh, what are some of the resources? And so um, I think I think Google helps. Like if you can't find the information at your local institution, then um, you could perhaps look online for it. Um, I think outside of that, what I would recommend is that you spend time in the community in which you're going to do the research or volunteering or whatever it is you're gonna do. And so um, there's nothing worse than somebody from the outside coming in and just you know, talking a whole bunch at the people and talking about research and yada, yada, yada. A lot of these individuals who are gonna be participants in the research um, are facing real struggles. And uh, you know, for our clients, for example, many of them are not aware of the next meal that they're gonna have or when the next time is that they're gonna be stably housed. And so their priorities are not your priorities. And so I would say coming into it, you need to spend time with the community um, in ways that are appropriate, not not any not putting yourself in a position where like you're there to save people or to help people necessarily, but to just be there sometimes and listen. And if the person is comfortable with uh, with it to witness and just to be present if they're open to that. Um, you know, life on the streets is very complicated, very complex, it's very fast moving, and it's, it's just at a whole different speed than what, you know, academic institutions bring to the table. So spend some time in the community, uh, learn about it before you start asking research questions. I love that. Um, and I just keep thinking about what you said about trust, right? And, you know, um, when students are wondering, like, well, how do we build back that trust? I think it's just what you said, right? Being present, showing up and listening instead of talking and kind of, you know, and um, I think the challenge a lot of people have, or, you know, kind of the questions are like, but it takes so long. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> That's how relationships <laughs> are built, right? Um and I think, you know, that's not oftentimes how our funding systems and our kind of um, progress metrics like to work, right? They're not well aligned. So, um, but I think it's so important what you just said, just that being present and taking that time to really, to build the trust. So I think that's- um, Well, that's, that's the rub, isn't it? It's that the, the pace of the research and the demands of the research do not line up with the realities and the culture of the actual work that's being done. And surely there's somebody out there getting paid a lot of money to figure out where we can cross talk or at least have some conversation about how we can join those two together. Because part of that community based research 
is pulling up a chair and just listening. And it's not data gathering. It's just being there, going to a fish fry, you know, attending a church service. Um, you know, uh, somebody needs, you know, a ride somewhere and you're trying to get a chance to know the participant, you might give them a ride somewhere. I, I don't know. It's just kind of like whatever. There are lots of different ways to learn about a community in which you're doing research. And you have to take some of those steps before you start whipping out the clipboard and asking questions. And sometimes it doesn't align with the timeline. Um, and I don't have a good solution for that. You know, I think it's just a matter of being very clear with the funder, perhaps, or, you know, sneakily working that into the timeline as part of the objectives of the research. I don't know. It's a, um, an area that research really just has to change, right? I think that, you know, like you said, maybe coming to the table to find some some middle ground, but I don't know that it's that. I think that we can't expect communities to change to our schedules, right? I think that's how harm has been done in the past. Yeah. And so if we wish to not replicate those um those harms, those challenges, we have to like the the onus is on the side of institutions and you know the researchers and research institutions and research funders to really recognize that if you wish to improve outcomes over here, you need to, you know, and in the community, you need to to operate under in the way that the communities operate as opposed mm -hmm. to in the way that that your systems would prefer to operate, right? Yeah. Say this yeah. is someone who's trying to work in that system and trying to bridge that you know, that, that gap, how do we uh, get this funded and also not be bad partners? Right. Yeah. That's such a good point, Kelly. I guess, let me just throw this out maybe for all of us, but like, how can this work get funded? Who is funding this type of work? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't do a lot of research. Um, I mean, I do, you know, this capacity building so that we can get to the point of doing research. Um, but as far as the, you know, the actual funding of the research, I mean, I, I do know, know that there are a lot of organizations out there that will gladly fund clinical programs. And um, if you can build the foundation uh, strategically, it's possible that through the program you're funding, you can hire somebody to be like a data analyst or something like that. Um, or, you know, a program assistant who does analytics as part of the job scope. I don't know. I mean, yeah. How's Peter that's, and Paul funded? What did you say? How is Peter and Paul funded? Oh, just in general, um, we are, we're funded a lot of different ways. So we have federal grants. Uh, state grants, citywide grants. Um, we are funded via uh, Medicaid. So for two of our programs, we are community-based psychiatric rehab centers. And so we're able to build Medicaid at a per diem rate for the clients that we see every day. And so that's Medicaid. Um, we have private foundations who fund us. Um, we have uh, donors, you know, some small donations, some large donations. Um, people might donate property or uh, I think a couple of years ago, somebody donated some Bitcoin and we had to try to figure out how to, to navigate that. 
Um, sometimes it's bequests. And so, you know, we plant seeds a long time ago to, to build some support in the community and people appreciate us so much that they're willing to, you know, write us into their, um, their estate or, or their will. So um, we're funded a lot of different ways. It just kind of depends on the program, I would say. That sounds tricky. I feel like as I was thinking about what Kelly was saying too, and like it really is kind of at the institution that we we need to do better. But then I was thinking about the timelines and um, Adam, how you were talking about how the timelines don't match, but why can't we make the timelines match? And, um, and I think that's an institutional responsibility that if we're gonna engage with communities that we need to be committed to, to meeting the community where, where they are at and being present before we insert ourselves if, and not just inserting ourselves at all really. But then I think about the timelines that we're given as um, academics for tenure, for getting grants, for getting papers out. And that's gotta change somehow. Just throwing that out there. I don't really have a comment, but. <laughs> it's value systems, right? So, you know, we're driven by metrics, we're driven by outcomes. Um, and and if that's the only thing we value in terms of knowledge, then we're, we're stuck here, right? If we're not valuing what we learn and the conversations we have when we're engaging with the community without tracking data, then we're stuck. Right. And I think that's the, the struggle that we have is that we um, our value system is very heavily weighted and very specific outcomes that are deemed to move the needle in a particular way. And we don't realize that if we broaden, you know, kind of our understanding of um, the kind of great assets, resources and challenges in our communities, we could do so much more good with what we have. Right. But that's, that's just I don't know. That's my personal take, I think. We're driven by what we can count and measure easily, quickly, efficiently, and for the lowest cost. And that's not how it yeah. works. And I'm wondering if, I mean, to your point, Kelly, I'm wondering like how much we change that story, uh, you know, with funders that, you know, like people who fund Peter and Paul, you know, we have a couple of private donors. Like I said, we have foundations uh, who might contribute to us. They're very interested in funding programs or funding specific projects. And I'm wondering, you know, what the onus would be on an organization like Peter and Paul to go back to the funder and say, hey, I know you're really interested in this, but we have this additional layer of questions that we would like answered with this funding. Um, so like in addition to all the stuff that you want us to do, what do you think about you know, funding us to work this into, you know, research or uh, to help us build some of this research infrastructure so that we know how we're going to measure what we're doing and then are able to tell the story about what we did uh, after we did it. I don't know. It could be, you know, it could be on the individual nonprofit and, and funder to have that discussion as well. You know, I hadn't thought about it in that way. I was thinking a lot about the kind of research university institution side of it, but that's a really um, interesting point. Like, right, like if we, you know, can we do that? And yes, and we love this money, but can we, can we 
broaden the parameters just a little bit. I think that's yeah, an interesting perspective to think about it from both sides for sure. Yeah. I don't know that we addressed your time time frame question, Catherine. I think um I feel like we <laughs> talked about the time quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Different. My yeah. expectations are not yours. And you know, the timeline that I have is not your timeline. I think it's that. I think it's also like measuring progress, right? Like, so, you know, spending time in a community and kind of learning um, about the community you you hope to work with. Um, if we if we think about outcomes differently, then we can do work in a year's time that is not necessarily the same outcome we were wanting to measure, but we're we're, we're still learning something. There's still progress, right? So, it, so, I mean, I don't know, yeah. Are there any yeah. questions that we're missing that that like you feel like we should have asked Adam or you know areas of working with community-based organizations or with individuals that we should be thinking about or future community-engaged researchers should think about? Yeah, I mean, I think that one recommendation um, is for any institution, whether it's Washington University or whoever might be listening in. Um, make sure you are very cognizant in how you talk about the community and how you go about partnering with the community. Um, I think a lot of institutions have the best of intentions, um, but there might be internal messaging or, you know, conversations that staff members have about, oh, you're doing research in this area, be careful, you know, or it's not safe or, you know, something like that, where we we have, again, with the humility approach, we have to understand that, you know, people live in the community. They live in these neighborhoods that a lot of us shy away from. And many people are doing okay. Um, and they, it's, it's home for them. It's where they raise their kids, you know, where they buried a parent, you know, where their kids went to school. So it's like, we have to be very cognizant about how we talk about the community um, because word gets out. And you know, if a community understands that as a large institution with an extraordinary amount of power, uh, there's no respect for the community, then it's definitely not gonna get reciprocated nor should it get reciprocated. I think secondly, this probably goes beyond the scope of the research question but we have to think through the fact that a, a lot of times when we're talking about community-engaged uh, leadership and research, we're talking about communities that are typically economically depressed. And so um, think through how an institution can leverage its power and resources to maybe do something to support the economics of the community. Um, you know, if you're having a staff meeting, is there a company that you can go with from a certain zip code uh, in an economically depressed area for a staff retreat. Could you pick an office, you know, in a building in a particular area? And so I think it's it's about being very intentional and thoughtful about how the institution partners with the community, but also how it actually identifies the community. Um, it should never be anything where we're like looking down on organizations 
or people in the community. It's very much, we want to learn from you. Um, we have a little bit of expertise on our end about research, but you have all the lived expertise um, and we would love to have a conversation. Yeah, I love that. And just asking the questions, right? Like recognizing you don't have to have all the answers going in. I want to do work. How should we go about it? Yeah, I love it. I feel like as an OT too, I think about that a lot more recently, perhaps maybe less so as a new graduate. And uh, But I think a lot of people already have ideas of what would work to fix things. And um and oftentimes you just have to ask what their ideas are, what they think is going on that is the source of the issue. And maybe we don't need to do a whole long, you know, investigation to figure out what the problem is. The people experiencing it probably already are aware. Mm -hmm. There's a quote, I can't think of who says it right now, but it's the, you know, um, the people closest to the problem, like have the most information about it, understand it best and just have the least power to change it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for joining us today. Check out our other episodes to hear more. You can find the first season on YouTube under Washington University Program and Occupational Therapies channel under the First Fridays for OT Research playlist. And more episodes of Demystifying Research linked under the Research tab on the Washington University OT webpage at ot.wustl.edu. That's ot.wustl.edu. Send us your ideas for future episodes at demystifying. <laughs>